are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to Season 2. We have made it a whole year. Isn't that fantastic, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) And we have so many fantastic episodes planned and great guest speakers. We do. We have so many episodes, I can't make sense of them all as Darlene is subject to. I keep sending her ideas. How about this? How about we do an episode on this? And we could do this. (laughs) There's just So. so many things to talk about in addiction medicine. It is just the best field ever. Yep. So thanks for staying with us this long and more to come. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are discussing cocaine and bath salts. We're going to discuss cocaine and its derivatives, bath salts, cathinone, and a few other synthetic cathinones. And we will discuss ecstasy, molly, and other over-the-counter stimulating drugs like pseudoephedrine at a later podcast. We're going to go into the epidemiology, the mechanism of action, and the neurobiology, intoxication syndromes, management and toxicology, withdrawal syndromes, and treatment, and then use disorders and treatment options. All right, so Paula, kind of give us the history of cocaine. The history of cocaine is that it's been used for over over thousands of years in South American people. especially in the countries of Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, where folks have been known to chew and brew the leaves of the erythroxylin coca plant. And this plant is rich in the alkaloid that is derived to be cocaine, basically. And when the Spanish arrived in South America, they ignored the local people that said this is a really great tonic and a great leaf to chew. And they actually then decided for themselves that it was worth a try. And then fast forward to the 1800s, where scientists then began to extract the alkaloid from the tree and from the leaf of the coca tree. And they began to ship and isolate cocaine around the world. And it began to be used as a tonic for all kinds of things, especially toothache, because it was a numbing and anesthetic and a vasoconstrictor. And it became popular in the 1800s for menstrual cramps, because of course, we wanted to give anything to help women feel better and headaches and also anything that would uh, cause increased energy. So it was given to people who were working long hours and had the need for some energy. In the 1900s, the drug became came popular as a recreational drug, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And in fact, you know, the U.S. lags behind some other European countries in terms of its use even now. In the mid-1960s in this country, in the U.S., it was declared a controlled substance and placed on the controlled substance schedule as a CS2 because it did have some, it does have some medical use. We still use it as a vasoconstrictor in ENT procedures and maybe even an anesthetic. And now fast forward to the 1980s where crack cocaine began to be a popular drug when chemists began to isolate the base form of cocaine. And we then moved into the crack cocaine epidemic era of our country. And there's a lot to be said about this, Darlene, in terms of the demographic and socioeconomic and racial disparities of the affected folks in this country who use crack cocaine and how it was approached. And 
and I, we could go off on a tangent about this, but I really think we we owe it to say that the crack cocaine epidemic in the 1980s and the night, well, actually the 1990s really disproportionately affected Black Americans and did not receive the attention that the opioid epidemic has received in the 2000s. And in part, that's, or maybe not in part, largely that's due to race and the fact that we didn't care that this was Black people that were affected. That is so true. Whereas the opioid epidemic affected rich white people and it got a lot of attention and we need to all stop as a medical community and recognize that this is a huge disservice and error and grievance towards our fellow Black Americans that they suffered this epidemic of drug use causing large amounts of loss of life and productivity and social fallout because we didn't address as a society and as a government and locally and as a medical community those people who are affected by the crack cocaine problem in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, you know, cocaine is growing in its popularity. Again, we see drugs come and go in popularity, just like Dr. Howell said for our cannabis episode. And cocaine was huge in the 1990s. Crack was huge in the 1990s. And then in the 2000s, with the kind of emergence of opioids as being a popular drug and cannabis always being popular, we saw a decline in cocaine use, but we're now seeing this resurgence in stimulant use and cocaine use. And uh, we'll kind of talk about epidemiology here coming up. So the epidemiology, primary age group that is most popular, and we're seeing 18 to 25, although you see it all age groups, but that's the biggest age group, right, Paula? Right. Yeah. Typically, it's a drug used by younger people, but I agree with you. We're seeing it throughout all ages, especially now with the in the uptick in stimulant use in general. Yeah. And one out of five overdose deaths in 2017, cocaine was involved. That number is rising. Global illicit manufacture of cocaine reached all-time high in 2017. Nearly 2,000 tons of cocaine was seized at U.S. borders. And then the NASDA study showed 4.1% of 12th graders' lifetime use of cocaine. 1% of the U.S. population current use cocaine. If you split that up, that's two-thirds cocaine, one-third crack. And then formulations. So breaking this down, it's typically a white fine crystalline powder. So it's most of the time cut with sugar, flour, talcum powder. And then interesting, just recently we're seeing a lot more of levamisol which is really dangerous. Or you can see it in the base form, which is known as crack or small rocks crystals. What are you seeing or hearing about from patients? There's some geographic differences to the use of cocaine in this country, where we see more of an East Coast distribution of users of cocaine yes. powder. And also the West Coast and the Northwest Strip, you know, all the way down to California, really see folks using cocaine in its pure form. Crack cocaine seems to be sprinkled around the country with certain areas having a little bit higher use. It's common in pretty urban, large urban settings. In the Mountain West area where you and I work, and if you look at Utah, Nevada, Wyoming, Montana, up into even the southern part of Washington, we see a lot more methamphetamine use than we do cocaine and crack. Although I, I have to say I've been hearing a lot more about crack cocaine use lately. It could just be that the population I'm working with. 
I'm hearing about it and I'm, I have to say I'm interested in it. I'm interested in its use, in the use disorder and in how to help people with this particular drug. It's a fascinating drug. Yes. And so what are some of the routes of use? What do you tend to see most often? Well, cocaine is typically used via nasal insufflation or IV. And binge use is typical with cocaine, and most of the time people will snort it. I would say that you hear about people rubbing it on their gums as well, yeah. and and that's actually common in I think a lot of other countries where people will almost like like uh, tobacco, they'll rub it, and it will cause this numbing sensation and be absorbed buckily. People will inject it. I think that you see that in more advanced users. And you see people injecting cocaine mixed with heroin. That's the good old-fashioned speedball method that was made famous by the movie Train Spotting, I think, and was something that was kind of common in the 90s. And I remember when I started practicing addiction medicine, I sound like an old, like an oldie, but back, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, we used to hear a lot more about speedballing. I used to do methadone clinic intakes, and people would report using speedballs. Now, I honestly hardly ever hear about that. I don't know about you, Darlene, but I hear much, much more frequently about heroin and methamphetamine use conjunction compared to cocaine and heroin. And that, again, could just be a geographic thing. I agree. I, I think I'm seeing the same thing. It's been this shift from when we started. We're, we're the same cohort, kind of shift in our practice from the same thing, early 2000s. And, and I don't know if it's just accessibility maybe has changed. Yeah, maybe. I think also cocaine Cocaine is much more expensive than methamphetamine. Crack is more is more inexpensive, but cocaine is is quite an expensive drug. So you're right. I think accessibility uh, definitely plays into that. In terms of routes of use for crack, crack is most typically smoked in a crack pipe, and once you, you can dissolve it and inject it, but it's mo- it's smoked. It's a smoked drug. So th- those are the most common routes of use. I'd say nasal insufflation, smoked if in the base form, which is crack, or injected. Some people like to use cocaine or crack in combination with the opioid or another downer to kind of offset some of the uh, sympathetic effects of cocaine. And then you also see this huge combination, especially in the party scene, with cocaine and alcohol. And those two chemicals actually are metabolized and combined to form a novel compound called cocaethylene. Do you remember this from taking our boards? (laughs) It's a favorite board question. So cocaethylene is much more potent. It has a kind of a potentiated effect on the brain more than alcohol alone and more than cocaine alone would have. And unfortunately, cocaethylene is really toxic. It's toxic to the liver and the heart and the kidneys. So when you have a patient who is using cocaine and alcohol in combination frequently, which actually is a very common combination, they may not understand why the effect is so desirable, but it's because of this product from the chemical reaction. You have to look out and monitor and evaluate for toxicity to some of those um, solid organs in your patient. So some of the mechanisms of action and the neurobiology that's involved of how cocaine works, it's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. I am taking this straight from NIDA's website. So if you go to drugabuse.gov, in the normal neural communication process, dopamine is released by neurons into the synapse 
synapse, where it can be bound to the dopamine receptors and on neighboring neurons. Normally, what happens is dopamine is then recycled back into the transmitting neuron by a specialized protein called the dopamine transporter. And if cocaine is present, what what happens is it attaches to that dopamine transporter and blocks the normal recycling process. This results in an increased amount and buildup of dopamine in that synapse that contributes to the pleasurable effects of cocaine. That's that reward process is you're getting that buildup. And then cocaine demonstrates some profound changes in glutamate neurotransmission, including how much is released and the level of the receptor proteins in the reward pathway. It's particularly affect the nucleus accumbens in that system. So the glutamate system is what they're looking at and, you know, these opportunities for treatment is trying to treat that reward pathway when you look at what's happening down the road with this long-term use. Yeah, well, I think that's really interesting. And there's a lot being looked into the epigenetics of cocaine addiction and other synthetic cathinones like bath salts. You mentioned activity in the nucleus accumbens area of the brain, which is kind of what we consider the reward center of the brain, right? Along with the ventral tegmental area. If we look a little bit more into the nitty gritty, what you were, you know, you see increased expression of delta fos b in the nucleus accumbens and what we're understanding about delta fos b with drugs of abuse is when you have overexpression of that chemical it leads to increased brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which that then stimulates receptors and neurons in the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex areas of the brain. And this primes the brain to seek this reward more. And when you reduce access to the substance, then you have all these primed neuro neurons and dendritic spines of these neurons that have been seeing all these neurotrophic factors that then just basically, that's what causes the withdrawal syndrome. And then you get lots of sensitivity to that glutamate response, and you get interactions and reaction with dynorphin, which causes people feeling really depressed, down and anxious. And we see relapse to cocaine in a massive way. And we think it's all due to this overexpression, like you're discussing in the nucleus accumbens with delta fos B and BDNF as mediators in the process. Yes, absolutely. So Paula, tell us what does the intoxication syndrome look like with cocaine? Okay, so the intoxication syndrome for cocaine or crack, and it's very similar actually for bath salts and other cathinones, you have a physical manifestation of the intoxication syndrome and a mental or psychological intoxication picture. So, you know, the whole goal really when someone uses cocaine or crack is is euphoria, obviously, and increased energy. You also have insomnia. You could see hostility and aggression, paranoia. Some people get completely panicked and anxious and may experience audio and visual hallucinosis, which I was just, we were reading and remembering that cocaine obviously is primarily a dopamine transporter drug, right? It floods yep. the brain with dopamine that doesn't get re reuptake, uptooken. <laughs> I don't know what, <laughs> what the verb is there, reuptaked. But it also acts on some of the serotonin receptors. And this is probably, well, dopamine is involved in hallucinosis. But I'm wondering if the serotonin um, activity is involved in that. I'm sure neurobiologists uh, can answer that. We also see with the intoxication syndrome movement, like extrapyramidal movement and picking behaviors and ticking 
right? When the, with the actual physical intoxication manifestations, what does a person look like? How do they present to you? They'll have dilated pupils, very, very dilated. So the opposite of an opioid picture. They'll have flushed, warm, and diaphoretic skin. I never forget I had a patient who really liked any stimulant, but he was particularly fond of cocaine and he would come to clinic. I mean, cocaine is very short acting, has a short half-life, but he would come to clinic and just be pouring sweat and be very warm. You know, the MA would get his vital signs and he would be measuring, you know, 37 point something and tachycardic and have high blood pressure. People can get so hypertensive and tachycardic that it becomes a crisis and they can become so warm and hyperthermic that that becomes a crisis as well. So people present to emergency rooms with basically sympathetic overdrive, tachycardia, extreme hypertension and hyperthermia, even up to 45 degrees. And this is where you end up getting muscle breakdown and organ damage is when you just get system overdrive. You also see arrhythmias. So people will have, uh, they'll feel palpitations. They'll also have that racing heart rate in terms of rapid heart rate. And they may present also with tremor, chest pain. They may be vomiting and they also have delirium. And it can be the delirium that is also very dangerous because they can get so agitated and delirious and psychotic, basically. I'd say delirious more than psychotic because it's transient that they can do dangerous things. What do you do? How do you manage cocaine? intoxication or crack intoxication syndrome, if it's mild, if someone just seems, you know, intoxicated in terms of, you know, they have increased energy, racing speech, they're pressured, they may be a bit hostile and aggressive and irritable, you put them in a cool, dark room, try not to bother them too much, but keep an eye on them that they're not hurting themselves or you know, need more assessment. If they come in and they have unstable vital signs, you want to proceed like you would for any other workup of an unstable or critically ill patient by going through your trauma assessment, basically ABCDEs and evaluate for airway and breathing and cardiovascular system, etc. And you want to stabilize the things that come up first, right? We want to look at labs because like we talked about, you can have such severe hypertension, tachycardia and hyperthermia as well as arrhythmias that people actually go into acute coronary syndrome and cocaine in and of itself causes uh, vasospasm. It causes vasospasm around the whole body, but it causes it in the heart as well. And so people end up with reduced myocardial oxygenation and they can bump their tropes and their CK and it's a common cause of death for people who have extreme cocaine or crack intoxication, as is seizures. And I'm not sure I understand the seizure mechanism. Do you? Stimulants lower the seizure threshold, but I'm not sure I understand why. That, I don't know that mechanism. But just when you bring up the ischemia, that's and this sometimes even more with the basalts, which we'll get into, but there's also the gastrointestinal ischemia, being aware of that too. So with, the, yes, with those you're GI right. symptoms, I mean, you're getting that too in the rhabdo, which you would see with the CK, but the rhabdomyolysis as well. So exactly. looking for that. Exactly. So people who come in in a kind of a cocaine crisis, they could have any organ, any and all organ systems affected. Your management is going to, you know, we talked about general evaluation, like a trauma evaluation. You want to evaluate labs, including, you know, CBC, CMP to look at liver and renal function, electrolytes, get a troponin, a CK, and probably a lactate as well. And then you want to get an EKG 
really early to evaluate for arrhythmia. So other things that you do, you want to get uh, EKG, as we discussed, you want to get imaging studies, generally CT of head and abdomen, uh, and you want to get lung imaging to evaluate for aspiration. It's important to evaluate imaging of the head because of the risk of ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. And unfortunately, you and I have both seen the victims of cocaine-induced stroke and some people with very severe deficits at a young age from cocaine intoxication. And then abdominal CT is important for evaluating, or I guess x-ray, for evaluating body packing. So people who may have swallowed balloons of cocaine and then had a balloon rupture, you want to have that on your differential. And then in terms of management, Darlene, you know, management in an acute setting, or if you see someone in your clinic, even or in a residential treatment center or detox centers, you know, you primarily want to treat all of the organ systems that are presenting in distress, uh, especially reducing the temperature with cooling mechanisms. You want to treat delirium and manage the cardiovascular over response. And so I'm really proud of myself because I came up with a really cool acronym that um, Good job. That I'm going <laughs> to... In medical school, I was the queen of acronyms. So this acronym, I'm going to use it myself to remember. So there are certain medications that are really helpful for cocaine and and general stimulant toxicity. And there are some that you should avoid. So always think benzos. When you see a delirious cocaine intoxicated person, I think there's a general desire to give people, you know, Benadryl or um, things like olanzapine or Haldol. The first drug you want to think about is a benzodiazepine. So always think of benzos first. And there's been a study that show that benzos plus antipsychotics are actually helpful. So they can slow people down. You do obviously want to monitor for oversuppression of the respiratory system. And if people are hypertensive, you want to use a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker like diltiazem or verapamil. Don't use uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like nifedipine, nifedipine because you get reflex hypertension. And the same goes for managing hypertension and tachycardia, especially tachycardia with a beta blocker. You want to ha- use a beta blocker that has both m- mixed alpha and beta activity. So labetalol would be kind of the beta blocker of choice. Now, I do not claim to be an emergency room or a critical care physician. So this is kind of basic addiction medicine 101, but this is the guidance that you'll find when you're looking up how to manage a cocaine intoxicated and toxic person. So the cool acronym that we can give you all is ADLs. So the ADLs for a cocaine intoxicated person would be A is for Ativan, give Ativan early. D is for Diltiazem, give Diltiazem for hypertension. L is for Labetalol for tachycardia. And then Z, little z, is for Zyprexa. So you could give Zytus to help manage the delirium and the paranoia, the agitation. What do you think of that? I'm super proud of that. I think that is actually a (laughs) fantastic. Why didn't you tell me that when we were studying for boards 10 years ago? (laughs) I just just thought of it the other day. I was like, this, we've got to think of some way to think about, about, remember this. Yeah. Withdrawal syndrome and management. Like you said, it's onset 
and its action is so short. We're probably seeing it, but I think I'm missing it. Don't you think, Paula? Yeah, I think so. I mean, people don't really present, not always anyway, they don't always present for medical, medically managed withdrawal management. And that's because we there's not a lot we can do to help people. I mean, really, they just, they kind of crash, right? And we offer conservative treatment. I mean, we have an order set, I've written an order set for my organization, involves just making sure people get enough calories to eat because they get super hungry and make sure that they're sleeping comfortably and are not feeling paranoid. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a patient who's admitted who's been using cocaine or crack or bath salts, and you try and get a history from them and you kind of have an idea that they're feeling paranoid or have been a little bit psychotic because of their stimulant use. And they go and they sleep it off and you check in on them every day if you're running a detox unit or if you're in the hospital. And it's only on day four or five that they come and say, oh my gosh, that was terrible. I thought you were all out to get me. You kept coming in at night and putting the blood pressure cuff and I thought you were strangling my arm and trying to kill me. At the hospital I was working at, it's a psychiatric hospital, we would shine little flashlights in the window to just do 15 minute safety checks. And these poor patients thought we were were spying on them. And, you know, <laughs> they, it only really came out after because they're too paranoid to even talk about it, right? The insight wasn't there. Like, is this real? Is this not real? So people don't often present for withdrawal management if they're about to go into treatment or if they're in jail or if they're hospitalized for something else and they're withdrawing, you end up, you know, witnessing it. But most of the time, it's not like opioids or alcohol or benzos where people are coming and saying, I cannot get through this myself. Yes. Now, that being said, I have to say a lot of it's not to say that it's easy because we I have there's a, so many people who can't get through the withdrawal syndrome because they feel so triggered to reuse because the fatigue, the cravings, the dreams and the depression is so significant that they go back and use again um, almost yeah, and immediately. So that's what you're listing. So the, the typical symptoms are extreme fatigue and don't discount that because many patients are presenting with mixed use. And so I think that's the one thing is it's uncommon, I think, for us as addiction providers to have patients present with pure stimulant abuse. We're usually seeing mixed abuse often. And so I think that's part of the challenge. And so sometimes we're missing that this somebody might be withdrawing from multiple substances. But if you're seeing a pure cocaine withdrawal syndrome, you're seeing extreme fatigue, hunger, vivid dreams, intense cravings, depression, continued paranoia that you just described. We're just putting them in a room and telling them sleep it off. But if someone's extremely paranoid, then that there is comfort measures that you can be provided that should be provided maybe beyond just the emergency room setting. Yes, I agree with you. And you know, two or three things that I just thought of is there's emerging evidence that we could probably be more aggressive with giving antipsychotics in the short term for folks who come in, even if they don't seem overtly psychotic or delirious, we may, and I mean, obviously we don't treat delirium with antipsychotics, but if they're psychotic or paranoid, we might be able to even out those initial couple of days with short-term use of a second-generation atypical antipsychotic such as olanzapine, catiapine, or risperidone. I've noticed clinically that this does seem to help people. People are pretty tired anyway, so they kind of take to the bed, and that might help with some of the vivid dreams as well because people describe really crazy dreams. It's like the, the, the coming away from the dopamine and serotonin overactivity causes their brain to go into hyperdrive. The other thing 
thing we need to remember in the withdrawal management period is people are very hungry and thirsty for two reasons. One, cocaine and crack and bath salts inhibit hunger. Naturally, they inhibit ghrelin and their stimulants, right? They're sympathomimetics. So fight or flight, you naturally don't eat or drink. And so people will come in malnourished. And you see nutritional deficiencies and protein calorie malnutrition in these folks that you need to address right away. You need to be aware of Wernicke's encephalopathy. You need to be aware of scurvy. And you need to be aware of basically every possible malnutrition, malnourished condition that exists. And the other thing is extreme dehydration. And that's from the second reason. And that is a lot of people who've been using stimulants right before coming in, they've been on a run. So they've been out using all night. If they're using cocaine, they often are, especially those seeking treatment, they're not just using once at a party and then that's it. They might be out using for three or four days, smoking crack, using cocaine, using bath salts, and not even aware of the last time they had a meal or had anything to drink. And they can have profound dehydration and you need to rehydrate them to help them feel better. Absolutely. No, I think that's an excellent point to not forget that what dangerous situations some of these patients can be in. What about the toxicology on cocaine and crack? Well, it's pretty easy, actually. Right. It's it's one of the only drugs that that is pretty easy yes. to detect on point of care testing and no and virtually no false positives. I mean, really, this one is pretty clean. Cocaine is pretty short, like it's only usually detectable at 24 hours, but it's main metabolite benzyl cognine. You're usually that's usually what you are testing and what you're picking up. And you can see that a little bit longer. But if you're picking up cocaine, the patient is likely using cocaine. That's exactly right. That That's really right. I mean, cocaine, you can have positive cocaine for up to three days, but typically people who don't use frequently be gone in 24 hours, then you see the metabolite for three or four days. And then otherwise, if it's a cocaine positive on a point of care, you can pretty much guarantee that it's a cocaine positive user. You could send it away for mass spectrometry or gas chromatography, and there might be a small chance that there's a false positive. Okay, which medications can cause a false positive for cocaine? Dextromethorphan is the most common, diltiazem, Benadryl, and metformin. So send it away. We have patients that are on those and they're not typically testing positive. So we, we diagnose cocaine use disorder according to the DSM-5 criteria for stimulant use disorder. And this is based on mild, moderate, and severe on six criteria. And this is number one, recurring use of stimulant that results in failure to satisfy important school, home, or work obligations, such as substandard work performance, frequent absences, suspensions, school expulsions, disregard for children or household due to stimulant use. Number two, recurring stimulant use in contexts that are physically hazardous, operating a machine or driving an automobile when impaired due to stimulant use. And then number three, an intense urge, desire, or craving for the stimulant. Number four, continued use of the stimulant regardless of recurrent or persistent interpersonal or social difficulties caused or made worse by the effects of the stimulant. Uh, For example, physical fights or arguments with the relatives or friends regarding consequences of intoxication. Number five, tolerance defined by either of these patterns occurring due to stimulant use outside of medical supervision, needing 
A, needing substantially more of the stimulant in order to experience intoxication or desired effects, or B, experiencing substantially reduced effects from continuous stimulants in the same amounts. And number six, withdrawal in either of the following forms due to stimulant use outside of medical supervision. Let's talk about some of the long-term effects that come from cocaine use. Paula, what are some of those things that you've seen? It affects almost all organ systems, unfortunately, in terms of H-E-E-N-T, cocaine use when insufflated will cause degeneration of the nasal septum. And look, um, do a physical exam and look up someone's uh, nostril and just see all the way through to the other side. Or people will just develop a hole or an ulcer through their septum. They'll develop gum and tooth decay from rubbing cocaine powder. And, uh, and people will have experienced bleeding, frequent bleeding in the withdrawal period because they have this vasoconstriction from using and then when they're not using, the uh, blood vessels dilate and bleed. We talked about the neuro effects with ischemic and vasoconstrictive stroke. It, also, brain aneurysms are fairly common, unfortunately, with crack and cocaine use. And you also have significant long-term cognitive impairment, difficulty focusing, difficulty executing executively due to damage to the frontal cortex. And um, we also see with the neurosystem, the development of movement disorders and Parkinsonian-like syndrome due to overexposure of the dopamine receptor. Basically, you get this flooding of dopamine all the time and people develop tics and Parkinsonian-like tremors that, that basically don't resolve. In terms of the GI system, we talked already about the gut ischemia that can occur from either acute or chronic vasoconstriction to the GI system. And I'd say of real note is the risk by infectious disease contraction from injecting cocaine. And we see increased infection with HIV, especially because cocaine suppresses immune cells. So HIV and I guess all viral infections and bacterial infections can kind of hook on and colonize a person. When you inject stimulants as well, you have an immediate vasoconstrictive effect on the vein that you're injecting into. So you often see people lose venous access and have damaged veins after injecting stimulants because of the very nature that, of what they're injecting. And so people end up with, with scarred down veins and then subsequently distal edema. So you see folks who come in with really swollen hands or swollen forearms, swollen um, lower extremities because they've been injecting stimulants into the their larger veins uh, more proximally. And I think you and I have both seen that and it's it's really unfortunate. No, I mean, these chronic effects and this fallout, not reversible. I mean, that's this is just terrible. Right. And you see, you know, stimulants in general have a reputation for, for being used in association with um, high-risk sexual behavior. So folks who may be engaging in high-risk sexual behavior, like some men who have sex with men um, in promiscuous circumstances may be more likely to use stimulants as part of the sexual experience. And so you combine those sexually risky behaviors with the drug and then you add 
the presence of maybe transmission of HIV, HCV, and HBV, and it's kind of like a perfect storm. So obviously, you don't generalize and extrapolate that to everybody, all men who have sex with men, but in some um, pockets of people who are engaging in those behaviors, you see increased transmission of those infections. We also see a terrible health effect and public health effect with women who are using crack and cocaine when they're pregnant, have low birth weight babies, preterm labor, and this is on everyone's board exam, whether you're a family medicine, medical student, OB-GYN, that you end up with a large percentage of a placental abruption, again, because of vasoconstriction. So these are things to consider when you're taking care of obstetric population. Yes. Treatment options. So while there's no FDA approved treatment options, there's several studies have showed some promise or small responses. So tell us about some of those. And these are similar to what we have seen for other stimulants. So methamphetamine use disorder that we've talked about in some past episodes. Right. Yeah. So like you said, Darlene, there are no FDA approved medications, unfortunately, for cocaine and crack use. But the studies you're referring to, I'm referencing this very good paper. It's a meta-analysis paper that was published in the journal General Internal Medicine in December of 2019, uh, written by Brian Chan and et al. They looked at bupropion as a medicine that might be helpful. And two randomized controlled trials did show a relative risk reduction in use and improved abstinence, a risk reduction of Uh, 1.63, 1.02. They looked at topiramate. Topiramate, again, studied in two randomized control trials. And that also seemed to improve abstinence as well. And I have to say, we use topiramate quite a lot in our population. And because of its activity on glutamate, and you discussed glutamate activity as one of the mechanisms of action, and of course, bupropion being a dopamine kind of agonizing type drug, this is probably the mechanism as to why these work. There have been several studies looking at tricyclic, tricyclic antidepressants, and with no overall evidence to support the use of these medications. However, I have to say clinically, I've had some good luck and good effect with some of the tricyclics. And I'm not sure if it was just chance that people needed an antidepressant and needed to help, you know, just needed to sleep and gain some weight. But I I will pull that out of the bag in the right person and the person that's otherwise a good candidate for tricyclic. In terms of other evidence-based approaches to treating cocaine use disorder, there've definitely been a lot of interest in the use of stimulants and medication like ProVigil and NuVigil. So using long-acting stimulants, long-acting versions of methylphenidate or dextroamphetamine salts. And, you know, there is moderate strength of evidence that they might be helpful. However, it's very, it's controversial. There are not a lot of studies. There are no protocols to use these medications and they are not FDA approved for the use of stimulant use disorder. And we do not use them. I, My mentor, none of my colleagues in addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry that I know of use stimulants or provigil, new vigil to treat cocaine use disorder. Uh, what about you, Darlene? Uh, yes, I, I am in the same bow. I, I have not used stimulants in the treatment of cocaine use disorder, or I'll be honest, in methamphetamine use disorder either. It, to have something that's non-FDA approved with a controlled substance to use it off-label like I that. I agree. Other things that have been looked at have 
are N-acetylcysteine, which has some evidence in some studies and no evidence in others. The problem with a supplement like N-acetylcysteine is it doesn't have big pharma to back it up. It's an amino acid, so it doesn't have a lot of powerful studies behind it. It may be helpful for patients if they can afford it. Medicaid doesn't pay for it, but uh, we do know that it has some efficacy in some people. I typically dose it 1200 milligrams BID. Uh, the other medication that's been of interest is disulfiram, which is interesting uh, because obviously we all know that medication is an abuse for the use of alcohol use disorder. And it has an interesting mechanism of action where it blocks uh, dopamine hydroxylase. And so it makes sense that it increases dopamine in the brain. So that's where it would be helpful. And you could certainly try it. I, again, we don't have a lot of options for folks. So pulling something out of the bag and saying, let's try this, let's keep working on it, much like we do for other chronic diseases is worthwhile. It's a really interesting mechanism of action. So it'll be interesting to see what studies yeah. show on that. I mean, the mainstay, though, the bread and butter of treatment approach for cocaine and cathinone use are behavioral therapies. And that's that's where we have good evidence to support recovery. And that's kind of our, that's our go-to with most addictions. And the, the hardest challenge is getting, engaging them in treatment. Right. Sure. And, and the most famous, I'd say, I mean, CBT has good evidence, like it does for everything. It's always the answer on the test. But the therapeutic approach that is well known for the treatment of cocaine use disorder and cocaine use is contingency management. And contingency management was has an interesting history that we won't go into, but it it basically involves incentivized, like a formalized incentivized reward system, the ability to earn small, almost random, but small rewards as you have negative urine tox screens for cocaine. And people in a methadone program were found to gloat over very small rewards, like a dollar bill or small vouchers in the community when they had a negative drug screen. And they found that people were more likely to stay abstinent if they were able to participate in this kind of reward system. 12-step programming is a um, is an option. You know, Cocaine Anonymous exists. And also therapeutic communities have some benefit as well. And in the integrative medicine arena, which is where I'm trying to get a foothold, there is some evidence for auricular acupuncture being effective for reduction of cocaine use and also nutritional therapies. So I think trying to address people's nutritional deficits, but then also look at helping dopamine synthesis in those presynaptic neurons that get pretty depleted. So those are all kind of future therapies and things that those of you who are interested in can look into for your patients. What about you, Darlene? Tell us a little bit about the interesting science and of immunizations for cocaine use disorder. Yes. You know, for years, we've always kind of heard about what about the cocaine vaccine. And there's been some studies on this and the smaller studies initially kind of just showed some promise. But when they would get to the phase three trials, you know, they weren't able to show as robust of response. So I'm taking this information from asam.org. This is a blog by Diana Martinez. And I am sorry, I am saying your name incorrectly. This is Pierre. And I think it's Trifolith, but it talks about the mechanism of action of how they do the vaccine. But in short, what it's basically doing is it's the vaccine is just Pretty simplistically, when cocaine is ingested, they're creating antibodies, and it's a very 
cocaine molecules are very small and these antibodies will then bind to cocaine and keep it from crossing into the brain and effectively inhibits its pleasurable effects. So simple, but so interesting how that can work. The problem that they're saying is because cocaine has is such a small molecule, we don't naturally, you know, you don't naturally generate these antibodies, but they have been able to create a successful vaccine that can do that. What they showed in some of these later trials, and that's what this article kind of talks about in those phase three trials, is then you would have some patients, especially those who were lower motivated, that would then just use more to try to overcome the vaccine. So it's interesting if you combine the vaccine, for instance, in with CBT, these 12 step or even like what you just talked about. So if if you combine this with the contingency management program, would this be successful? Mm. Or if we combine this with some of the other medications, would this be even more successful? So there's still some promise here, don't you think? Like, I, I don't know. I don't want to give up I, on I the vaccine. I don't either, but I, I, it's really interesting. It's amazing science, but I also have to just wonder like what the reception would be with a, a slightly paranoid population when we tell them we're giving them a vaccine <laughs> to prevent cocaine being transmitted across their brain. I can only imagine like the What you're saying is that's a bit of a hard sell. <laughs> when I announced in our one of our groups the other day that we now have the COVID vaccine in clinic. Oh, I got the comments. I'm like, I've got to shut this down right now. People were like (laughs) given all kinds of reasons why the COVID vaccine is pure evil. Um, You know, I'm like, yep, I do understand why you feel that way. That's why you got to do the contingency management (laughs) with it. (laughs) Here's your your $5 gift card. No, it's fascinating. And And your your injection. Exactly. Yes. So I'm not giving up on the vaccine. I'm interested. I'm very interested and I'm following the research. We'll keep you updated on that. Well, we've kind of been going on and on, Darlene. I feel like I've been blabbing away. We want to talk about bath salt. One of our loyal listeners asked me personally to talk about bath salts on the podcast. So this is a shout out for Ricky because we see a lot of bath salts in our program and we see a lot of bath salts in our geographic area. I don't know if you see bath salts a ton, Darlene, up where you work. Do you? I'm sure I do. It's the same thing. We can't test for it as easily. No, I mean, I do have patients who admit that they have have used bath salts. And then you wonder by some of their presentation, how many are have used from time to time by just their presentation. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, bath salts are, they're basically, they're mephedrone or MDPV and other variations of mephedrone. They're a class of drugs that are designer synthetic stimulant category of drug, but they're just not, they said that sounds kind of sexy, but they're really not very sexy drugs at all. They're synthetic cathinones. You know, the original cathinone and native cathinone is the plant cat, K-H-A-T, which is a plant that's grown in Southeast Asia that has this compound in it in the leaves called cathinone, which is, think about caffeine. It's not a caffeine-rich product, but just think of that to remember it. It has sympathomimetic effects, but also is somewhat like MDMA or ecstasy. So bath salts is a synthetic version of cat. You can kind of think of it like that. And mephedrone and MDPV being the most common chemicals that are synthesized 
synthesized in labs, most commonly in China, but now it could be really anywhere. And the action on the human who uses bath salts really mimic the action of cocaine, methamphetamine, and ecstasy, uh, but not in the fun way that it sounds. No, it's terrible. It's worse. Right. So you're going to see more seizures, more of the hyperthermia and the tachycardia. Don't don't you? I mean, it seems to just be much more pronounced and more yes. psychosis with these. Absolutely. They they're have really pretty. They can have really terrible effect. And the problem is they're really widely available and very cheap. So why do people use bath salts as opposed to cocaine or methamphetamine or crack? Well, they have a slightly different effect. So different effect on the brain because they have more serotonogic effect. And also they're cheaper than cocaine and maybe more accessible to certain populations. They're not regulated by the DEA, although some of the synthetic cathinones are a controlled substance one category drug. But like other synthetic drugs, like synthetic opioids and synthetic benzodiazepines, it's ever changing, right? So we can't keep catch up. The DEA can't keep track of all the different methadone derivatives and MDPV derivatives. And so we just can never catch up in some designer lab. Yeah, there's 10 plus of them. They, you know, they just, as soon as they label one of them, then another one just pops exactly. up. Exactly. And these are getting labeled as, yeah, bath salts or plant food. And they just slap what's a bath salt because they get the label not for human consumption on them to avoid regulation. And that right there is, is a red flag. I guess we should say that this is some dangerous stuff. Exactly. And our patients call them salts. I've been using salts. They also, you can see them advertised or see them labeled and packaged in uh, convenience stores. I named Ivory Wave or Vanilla Sky, Cloud Nine, Bliss, White Dove, these kinds of things. And they look like little powdered crystalline or solid, tiny little solid white powdered substance, depending on which product it is. Looks like kind of salt. It kind of looks like Epsom salts, actually. Very aptly named. So they're typically sniffed or snorted, but they can also be smoked, injected, you know, depending on kind of your level of use. So obviously you get hits the blood brain barrier, no matter how you use it, just depends on the rapidity and then the duration. And just like you said, it, it really has the same effect as cocaine and meth and ecstasy, except it kind of more bad things. <laughs> So increases alertness, euphoria, but you see terrible tachycardia, hypertension, rhabdomyolysis, diaphoresis, paranoia. You see a lot of bruxism with mephedrone and MDPV that you exactly, you don't see that really with cocaine and um, meth, uh, but you do with bath salts. So if you are on a toxicology service or you're taking your exam for your your medical student year two and you're in your brain and behavior series and you see bruxism in a patient who's presenting in the ed think mdma or think bath salts the big thing though that we hear is seizures they come in with seizures and also they come in with complete delirious psychosis like we had a patient who left one of the residential programs here in town used bath salts like immediately upon leaving she said that she got some on the train and actually became so like was so out of her mind she jumped out of the train and got in front of the tracks of another train unfortunately and got hit by a train 
And she has very, she has no memory of the accident, but she remembers using bath salts on the train. That was the last thing she remembered. So people do crazy stuff. They do terrible, crazy things. They are violent, um, agitated, and it can last for a long time. And I would hazard to say, and if any of you are in critical care, please email us or comment on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. But a lot of folks end up in the unit with bath salts intoxication, and it takes a little while to figure out what they've used. Um, because it doesn't show up on immediate talk screen, you have to send it out for mass spec. And you have to just figure it out based on their clinical appearance. It doesn't show up for cocaine or meth. And they kind of look like a PCP slash methamphetamine intoxication with a little different uh, twist. That is excellent. That's excellent advice. Yeah. And you know, management is the same as cocaine, basically. It's the same as MDMA and cocaine management. So I would say with ADLs, (laughs) take care of their ADLs, people. And also, we're going to cover ecstasy in in a future podcast. And we'll talk about the management of ecstasy. But in case any of you have these patients between now and then, and you desperately need this advice, remember to check sodium levels because you get hyponatremia and you can have seizures from that hyponatremic uh, state and you want to replete. Actually, you know, I wanted to talk about flaca. Uh, Flaca is another, is common in the Western part of the country and uh, similar to meth is, is common out here. And it's basically just another one of these synthetic cathinones. It's alpha PVP as opposed to MDPV. And it's a dangerous drug that's similar to bath salts, but we hear people around here using flaca and it's typically pink crystals. It's called gravel and um, it causes terrible paranoia and hallucinations and people do crazy stuff. So in fact, do you know what, Darlene, I'm remembering now the reason why I included and I wanted to talk about flaca is that our poor lady who jumped in front of the train, she she had used flaca. And people are vaping yeah. this. Yes. And that, yeah, that's, that's what's really disturbing. Anyway, bath salts, super interesting to summarize. They are synthetic cathinone. They are widely accessible, especially in some parts of the country. They mimic the effects of cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, and they cause a terrible syndrome with hypertension, tachycardia, hyperthermia, bruxism, rhabdomyolysis, agitation, seizures, and hallucinosis. You want to treat them conservatively in terms of put them in a cool, calm, reinforcing, rewarding environment. Don't agitate people who are intoxicated with these drugs. And you want to treat them uh, pharmacologically with the ADLs. And then I guess we'll summarize by saying long-term, you know, folks really need long-term behavioral and possibly pharmacological treatment for substance use disorder with stimulants. I mean, we just don't have an FDA drug to help, but maybe bupropion is helpful, maybe topiramate. We know that good old contingency management is our go-to. 12-step programming is always the answer, as is CBT, and never give up. Keep trying. We don't want to have a case like Whitney Houston where we just lose one more person to the substance. And I think that's fantastic. So in summary, in classic intoxication, picture look like? It would be dilated pupils. So not severely ill. If you just have someone in your clinic, I would say look for dilated pupils, diaphoresis, and agitation. Okay. So someone who's just kind of rapid, racy, they look manic, they might be hallucinating, and they look just warm and moist. That 
that's what it is. And and then treatment is Paula's fantastic mnemonic, ADLs. So you have Ativan, Dilteazam, Labetalol, and Zyprexa. So that's your emergency treatment. And then we just summarize the long-term treatment. So that's our CBT contingency management 12-step facilitation. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.